welcome everybody. It's good to be virtually with you. Um, the topic of our study will be the story of Abraham, the Abraham narrative. Um, I hope we can bring some fresh ideas to this foundational text. And um, I'll begin with chapter 12, the first verse, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 12, Ayomra Hashem El Abraham. So God speaks to Avram, he's called Avram at this point, and commands Avram, means to go, take yourself. In biblical Hebrew, as the Ramban points out very often, Lecha uh, is found perhaps as a, um, as a, uh, sort of a powerful way to say something. Brach mikomecha is what um, Balak says to Bilam brach lecha. So lecha functions in biblical Hebrew as a kind of intensive very often. And in any event, God speaks to Abram and commands Abram to leave, to go, leave his land, to leave his father's house, to leave his... Uh, perhaps his birthplace or his native land, to the place that I will show you. So he's not told to go to a particular place yet, but he's to go, told to go to the place that I will show you. So let me begin our sessions with a question that the Medrash is essentially asking. Probably every reader of the Torah asks the same question, which is, why is God speaking to Avram? What is it about Avram? that suggests that God would choose Avram for this particular mission. And just to reinforce the question, other characters of the Torah uh, were first of all told about their, their youth, sometimes their birth. Uh, here we're told nothing about Avram's first 75 years. But apart from that, what's interesting is if you look at the previous major character of the Torah, which of course is Noah. Noah is introduced to us in the beginning of Parsha Noah, chapter six. Uh, we're told they were told on Noah, the story, the history, the generations of Noah. Noah is tzaddik, tamim bedorotav, et Noah. So we're told that Noah is a tzaddik, the virtuous person, a righteous person, tamim, innocent or pure. He walks with God. And this is the preface to what follows, which is God is determined to destroy the world that God created and fashion a new world. And God will speak to Noah and instruct Noah to build the ark and to take his family with him and selection of animals to bring them onto the ark and to uh, be instrumental in a recreated world. But we know why God chose Noah. It's clear. God speaks to Noah. God chooses Noah. And more than that, the stories of Abraham and Noah are in many ways similar. They have many points of commonality. And here, God speaks to Abraham, gives Abraham a charge and a promise and a blessing, all in the first three verses of chapter 12. But there's no statement as to why this particular person would be chosen. It is true that later, the Torah will describe Avram in very positive terms. In fact, 
the three terms that we have mentioned in conjunction with Noah, Tzadik, Tamim, and walking with God, Et Elohim, Noach, appear in one form or another in the Avram narrative as well, and the many other commonalities, we'll get back to that. But the question is obvious, what is it about Avram, or is there anything about this person that suggests that he would be chosen? And that's a question that the Medrash in Breshid Rabbah asks, other Midrashim as well. And we're very familiar, I think, with the story that what causes God or allows God to choose Avram is that Avram early on has chosen God. And the Medrash uh, in chapter 38 of Breshid Rabbah has the story that's familiar probably to most of us about Abraham smashing his father's idols. <laughs> And the story has the different versions of the story, but the story that appears in Breshi Rabba is the following. So we're told there that Avram's father, Terah, in the Medrash, is in, not just an idol worshiper, but actually it's his business. He has an idol shop. And one day Terah leaves, the, leaves for whatever reason, and he entrusts the care of the shop to his son, Avram. So somebody comes into the shop and wants to buy an idol. And Avram asks him, how old are you? Major says, 50 or 60. He says, why would a 50 or 60 year old person uh, worship something that was created yesterday? So the fellow walks out. Then the next person, a woman walks in, has an offering to bring to the idols. So Avram takes a stick and smashes all the idols except the biggest one and hands the stick puts the stick in the, in, the, in the arm of the idol. And when his father comes home, he says, what, what happened? And Avram said, a woman came to bring a gift and the idols had a fight and the biggest idol smashed all the others. And the father says, Terah says, that's not possible. They can't do anything. If so, why do you worship them? That's the first half of the story. And the second half of the story, Terah takes his son Avram to Nimrod. Nimrod is the, the, the ruler of the land. And he, Nimrod says to Avram, why did you, why did, why don't you worship the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the sun? So Avram gives him, says, well, the sun is uh, the fire, he says. Why don't you worship fire? Avram says, well, the water can put out the fire. Why don't you worship the water? Well, the clouds bring the water. He goes on like this. At the end of it, Nimrod says, I worship the fire. I'm going to throw you into the fire. So he takes Avram and he throws him into the fire. Let's see if your God can save you. And Avram's God does save Avram from the, from the furnace. And Avram's brother, Haran, is watching because he thinks he too may be asked the question, do you worship this God or not? And when Haran sees that Avram has been saved from the fire, he says to Nimrod, no, I, I also believe in the God of Abraham. At which point too, he too is cast into the fire but he's burnt in the fire. And this, the Medrash says, that what it, is what it means at the end of chapter 11, uh, the very end of the previous chapter, we began with chapter 12. It says that, mm-hmm. So the Medrash says, the verse is, um, let's find that verse. Uh, it's verse number 28 of chapter 11. 
it says that so the medrash takes or kastim or from the language of or of a light of fire he died on account of before his father terach in the lifetime of terach which the medrash takes to mean he died on account of terach who essentially had handed Abram over to Nimrod. And then Haran is wavering to see which way things are going to go. And he determines to follow Avram's path. Avram was saved, but he's not saved. That's the Medrash I think that many of us are familiar with in one form or another. There are other versions of the Medrash. That's the one that appears in the Breshit Rabbah. So the question is, as we begin our study, what is this Medrash actually about? Certainly, one thing it's about is it is determined to give us some reason, some justification for God's calling of, of Abraham, because he's already essentially chosen God, and uh, God has chosen him for this particular mission. That's the Medrash. But the truth is that the Medrash actually, and the way it's constructed, is doing many other things. So I wanted to begin with just to, to uh, think about this particular uh, uh, Midrash and what it is suggesting perhaps in terms of reading the Abraham story. So the Midrash has three pieces to it that I'm gonna begin with. One is this business of, of Abraham uh, breaking his father's idols. The second piece is the story of taking him to Nimrod, who cast him into the fire. And the third is about the death of his brother Haran, who uh, is waiting to see uh, how, what the outcome is when Abraham is cast into the furnace. So let us begin with first things first. By the way, there was a study several years ago. They asked, uh, all kinds of Jews from different backgrounds, etc. What story of the Torah, what's the story that stands out from the, uh, from, from the Torah? The one you really connect to the more than any other story. And the, the, the winner was Abraham breaking his father's idols. Now, of course, Abraham breaking his father's idols is actually not in the Torah at all. But I guess maybe since those who learned Bible as little children remember the story of breaking your father's idols, Maybe that stands out, but, but the popular conception is that the story of Abraham breaking his father's idols is to be found somewhere in the Bible. And of course, it's not found in the Bible. When I say it's not found in the Bible, that's not entirely true. It actually is found in the Bible, but it's not about Abraham. There is a story about somebody breaking his father's idols, which the Medrash is simply co-opting here and attaching to Abraham. But the story of somebody breaking his father's idols is found in the book of Shoftim, book of Judges. Uh, we had on Sunday mornings the occasion to study the book of Judges not too long ago. Feels like a century ago, but in any event, that's the story of, of, uh, of Gidom. The story of Gidom, which the Medrash co-ops and uh, moves it over to Abraham, is found in, well, Gidon occupies several chapters in the book of Shoftim. It's one of the major characters. But the chapter six of Judges, 
Judges chapter 6. It's good for this class to have a Tanakh. That's the, the only thing you need is a Tanakh. And uh, the angel comes to Gidon in chapter 6, verse 11 of Judges. He's sitting under a tree, Tachata and he's hiding out from, from the Midianites. We first meet Gidon, he's hiding. He's threshing, he's threshing a wheat in a, in a, in a wine press. So the angel of God appears to him and says, oh, you, are, you, you mighty warrior, God is with you. And Gidon says, if God is with us, why do we have all these, all these sorrows? How come we're being oppressed by, the, by others? And the angel says, go with this resolve and save Israel. I'm going to be with you. Gidon says, how, how, how can I do this? I'm the youngest. I'll be with you, says God. And what Gidon says is, give me a sign. This is very similar to the story of, of Moshe, choosing of Moshe. Give me a sign. Fine. And then uh, Gidon uh, brings a sacrifice. And this angel... Uh, the angel leaves, and Gidon thinks he's going to die because he's seen an angel. And God says, no, don't be afraid. You will not die. Then, in chapter 6, God speaks to Gidon. This is chapter 6, verse number 23. And God says to Gidon, take a bull, a young bull belonging to your father, and another bull. Pull down the altar of Baal which belongs to your father, cut down the sacred post, which is beside it. In short, his father has an, an altar to, to Baal, and maybe to Asherah as well, foreign gods. Destroy the altar of your father and bring a sacrifice to God. And if, and Gidon, uh, Gidon was afraid, it says, to do it by the daytime. So he does it at night. He asked 10 people to help him. This is all in chapter 6 of Shoktim. And uh, he does it at night. Early next morning, the people, townspeople, found that the altar of Baal had been cut down. And a second bull had been offered on a newly built altar to, to God. So they asked each other, who did this? Who, who, who did this? It's verse 29 of chapter 6. And they see, they circuit that by Yidrishu, Drisha, they seek it out, they, they, they investigate. Gidon ben Yoash. Must be Gidon, the son of Yoash, who did this. And the people go to his father, to Gidon's father. And they say to Gidon's father, hand your son over to be killed. He has destroyed the, the uh, Asherah. He destroyed the altar for the Asherah and the Asherah. And Yoash says to all the people that are with him, Hatem will you be the ones who, who argue for Baal? Um, you're going to say Baal? What do you mean? The one who argues for favor of Baal should die, because that's suggesting that Baal can't fight his own battles, that Baal is incompetent. If Baal is angry with Gidon, let Baal, let Baal take care of it. And from that day on, they called Gidon Yibu Baal. Yarev Bohabal, let Baal argue with him, let Baal contend with him. When you read the story in chapter six about Gidon, and the word Gadea means to, to, to tear down or to break down. In fact, in the Torah, 
when it talks about foreign authors, mizbechotan tigadeun, to, to knock down, to chop down the altars. When you read the story, it bears a very striking resemblance to the Medrash about, about, about Avraham. We'll come to the differences in a moment, but let me point out one more thing about chapter six of, of Judges, Shoftim chapter six, and that is that uh, Gidon then turns to God and, and the enemy has, has gathered together, the Midianites and the Amalekites gathered together, and Gidon turns to God at the end of chapter six and says, God, if in fact you will help me deliver Israel, then I'm going to put down, this is chapter six and verse 37, I place a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If dew falls on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I know you will deliver Israel through me, as you have said. So Gidon asks for a sign from God. And that's exactly what happens. Then Gidon the next day says the following, verse 39. Please don't be angry. Let me speak one more time. Let me test you one more time. Let me test you one more time. The reverse. This time, let the fleece be dry with his dew all over the ground. And God did that. So Gidon actually asked for a sign. He asked for two signs. He says, let me speak one more time. And let me test you. And the word for test is nisayon, anaset. So that too was very striking because we're told in chapter 22, Yakeda. Elohim Nisat Abraham, God tested Abraham. And we're also told that earlier, when Abraham argues with God about Sodom, Abraham said to God, let me speak Achapam, Adabra Achapam. So it would appear that the book of Shoftim has actually taken two key words in the Abraham narrative. Abraham arguing with God about Sodom, and Abraham not arguing with God, but rather being tested by God at the Akedah, and the word Nisayon. And this follows immediately upon this business of breaking the idols, of knocking down the idols, not just idols, his father's idols. And when people go to, his, to Gidon's father, he says, what do you listen? Let, let the gods, let, let, let the Baal deal with this. But you shouldn't argue for Baal, that's not right. Let Baal deal with this. So what the Medrash does actually, perhaps understanding that the Gidon story in one form or another is connecting to the Abraham narrative, the Medrash takes the Gidon story, but shifts it around a bit. Because in the Gidon story, we have first of all, a very frightened person. One of the things that is a hallmark of the Gidon story is he's always afraid. He's afraid to do this in the daytime, he does it at night. He's hiding out when we first meet him. He demands signs of God. He demands signs a second time of God. Throughout the Gidon story, for most of it, it's a frightened person who God is trying to bolster. In the, in the Medrash about Abraham, though, there's no sense of fear whatsoever. He does it in the daytime. He's minding the shop, as it were. And it's Abraham who actually makes the argument, says, I didn't do anything. The, the, the biggest God destroyed the other gods. So it's Abraham. Essentially, it's a reworking 
of the Gidon story. And, but this time it's not about the father, it's about Abraham himself, who is breaking the idols. And more than that, and this is very important, that in the Medrash in Breshit Rabbah, it's Abraham against his father. It's his father in, the, in, this, in this version, actually. It's the father who is angry with Abraham for breaking the idols and brings him to Nimrod to be judged. So the, it's interesting what the Medrash is doing. The Medrash is seeing Abraham as already seeking God, as very bravely confronting the idols. But it's also presenting Abraham, unlike in the Gidon narrative, which is different, there the father takes the son's side at the end of the day. But in the Abraham Medrash, it's Abraham against his father. Now, what is it in the text, actually, that would suggest such a thing about Abraham against his father? And here we come to an interesting question about the Abraham narrative. All today is by way of, 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 of introduction. And what's interesting in thinking about the story of, of Abraham, which you could say begins in chapter 12, when God first communicates with Abraham, commands Abraham to go, but the truth is Abraham is mentioned earlier, but there's a larger point here about the study of Bible in general. And that is that I know many schools, I think I grew up this way. I believe we started studying Chumash with the story of Abraham in chapter 12. That's how we started Chumash, chapter 12, Abraham's story. But of course, the Torah does not begin with chapter 12. The Torah begins with chapter 1, verse 1. Just read that. And therefore, in order to understand the Abram story, we always have to think about, and it's true of all the stories of the Bible, it's true in general. What is the context of the story? The Torah didn't begin with Abraham. The Torah begins with creation. And therefore, when we're studying with the Abraham narrative, we have to think about the context of the Abraham narrative. I say context, but the truth of the matter is there are multiple contexts. There is what immediately precedes, of course, and we'll get to that right away. But what immediately precedes is not really a narrative. What immediately precedes chapter 12 is a genealogy. The Torah consists of stories and genealogies. The book of Genesis is stories and genealogies. We tend not to pay too much attention to the genealogies, which is a mistake. They're very important. So what immediately proceeds is a genealogy. And we'll get to that momentarily. There's also the previous narrative. What is the narrative that precedes the Abraham narrative? The story that precedes the Abraham story immediately precedes it. If you take out the genealogy. So what precedes it is the story of Migdal Babel. The Tower of Babel is the previous, is the previous narrative, the previous story. That's a different context. That's very important. Then there is another context. There's the whole story of uh, Noah. As I mentioned before, there are many, many parallels between Abraham and Noah. Many parallels. There are many commonalities. And when there are commonalities, we are always thinking about differences. So Noah is a critical figure, and Abraham is a critical figure. And when reading and studying the story of Abraham, we will have recourse often to think about Noah 
who is on one hand parallel, but also different. We'll get to that as well. And then of course, there's the bigger context, which is creation. Avraham is part of the creation narrative. The, the, the Medrash and Midrashim understand this very, very well. For example, i quote one Medrash that Rashi cites in the Chumash, and that is in the very second beginning of the second chapter of the Torah, the generations, the story of heaven and earth, in their creation. And the Medrash notes that the word are the letters of Avraham. And actually, there's something very important there. What the Medrash is saying is, you can't really understand the Abraham narrative unless you understand the creation narrative because the Abraham narrative is part and parcel. It's not just embedded in, I would add, it's actually part and parcel of the creation narrative. So I already have mentioned four different contexts for the story of, of, of Abraham. And these will be critical towards understanding Abraham. Of course, the Abraham story has its own dynamic, its own power, its own internal structure. Of course, that's true, but one doesn't contradict the other. So let's begin today just with figuring out the context of this call to Abraham. And then after that, we will begin what is probably obviously one of the key foundational stories of the Bible. There's so many other stories that play off the Abraham story, both in Breshit and beyond, is a absolutely foundational story. And um, Let's begin with, first of all, what immediately precedes chapter 12, which is the end of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a genealogy. It's a list of names. And genealogies, as I mentioned before, are very important. And they're not all the same. Every genealogy has its own, has its own structure, has its own force, its own power. Chapter 11, begins with the Tower of Babel, which is the previous narrative to the Abraham story. And then we have a genealogy which begins, Ela Toldot Shem. So chapter, the genealogy of chapter 11 is the genealogy of Shem. Now Noah has three sons, Shem, Cham, and Yefet, but chapter 11 deals only with Shem. Chapter 10's genealogy deals with all the sons of Noah different genealogy. But chapter 11 deals only with Shem. And when you look at the genealogy of chapter 11, which begins at chapter 11, verse number 10, we notice something very interesting about this particular genealogy. And that is that the Torah does not give us the names of all the children of each of these generations. Shem being Noah's son. And then we're told these are the, gen the generations of shame, or the line of shame, I would say. Shame was ben Ma'at Shana. Shame was a hundred years old. He begat our Pachshad two years after the flood. And we're told then how old shame was, how many years shame lived afterwards, after our Pachshad. He begat sons and daughters, but no, but there are no mention of any sons and daughters, no names. There's only one name. Because shame our parshad. If you look at the list, you'll see 
This is true of every generation. The shame is our parshad, this shelach, this aver, this peleg, this ru, this sugug. And then you get to verse 24, nachar. And then verse 26, terach. Terach, it's the generations of shame. Now we come to terach. Verse 26, so immediately, immediately we jump and we say there's something different here. Because it's not just mentioning one child, one son, but it mentions three sons. So immediately, before we get to anything else, there's something different over here about, perhaps about Terach, or perhaps about his sons. And now we're told the following. Ewa toldot terach. Ewa toldot terach. That toldot is an interesting term. Ewa toldot terach. We had in the beginning Ewa toldot shame. Now we have Ewa toldot terach. Terach holidet Avram et Nacharvi et Haran. The Haran holidet Lot. So we have a lot more information, not just about his three sons, but now we have another a grandson, Lot. Haran died during the lifetime of his father. We know that the Medrash takes Alpnei as causal, that Terach somehow caused it, but the plain meaning is during the lifetime. So Haran dies, but we've already been told that he has a son named, named, named Lot. So Lot, one might say, stands in for his father. And now we're told the following. Avram nashim. Shem eshet Avram Sarai. V'shem eshet milka. Bataran. Avi milka vavi yiska. Verse 29. Now we're told more information. That Avram and Nachar, the two surviving sons, took wives. And the names of the wives. The wife of Nachar is milka. Milka, maybe we could translate princess or queen. Malka is a queen. And she is the daughter of Haran, the father of Milka, and the father of Yiska. So Haran has a second daughter, Yiska. In English, we say Jessica. So Jessica. It's got Milka and Jessica. And Avram, right, we're told that. Avram Sarai. I skip that. Avram's wife is Sarai, Sarah's princess. So the brother is married to queen. He's married to princess. And Haran had two daughters. It's told. Bataran, the daughter of Haran. That Milka is the daughter of Haran, the father of Milka, and the father of Yiska, the father of Jessica. But Yiska, Nisicha means, is another word for a princess, a nasikh, is a, a prince. So it's interesting that there are three names of the women. One is Milka, one is Sarai, and one is Yiska. The Medrash and the early Medrash suggests that Jessica and Sarah are the same person. And it's a suggestion that it actually could be the pshat, it's possible. Now, if in fact this is true, that Yiska and Sarai are the same person, 
if it's true, drop your disbelief for the moment. If it's true, that means that Sarah and Lot are brother and sister. And that's actually very interesting. We'll get to that in the future. Sarah and Lot, according to this, are brother and sister. In any event, whether it's true or not true, one thing is true. That when we first meet Abraham and his family, what stands out is that the family seems to be connected in one form or another with queens and with princesses. And that's a very interesting thing to think about, given the fact that in Abraham's life, he will interact with kings. In fact, he and Sarah will have a blessing of kingship, but he will interact with kings. He interacts with Paro in chapter 12. He interacts with Avimelech twice in chapters 20 and 21. And he has a battle against the four kings in chapter 14. So Abraham and kingship seem to be deeply connected. And it is striking that perhaps this is anticipated already in chapter, in the genealogy anticipates, as genealogies sometimes do, the larger narrative. That's something to think about, in addition to thinking about whether Jessica is in fact Sarah, which would make Lot and Sarah brother and sister, which has implications for the story later. So all of this is deviating from the plain genealogy. It's not just one child. No, we're given information. There are three of them. And we're told something about them and about their wives and the death of Haran. And then coming to verse number 31, back to Terach, all of this is within the, the frame of Terach. Ba'ikach Terach et Avram beno, v'yet Lot ben Haran ben beno, v'yet Sarai kalato. Terach took Avram, and he took Lot, the son of Haran, those two. He did not take Nachar. Nachar stays behind. But he took these two, Avram and Lot, the son of Haran, v'yet Sarai kalato, and he took Sarai, Avram's wife, his daughter-in-law, Eshet Avram Kastim, and they went, they traveled to Ur Kastim, from Ur Kastim, So they're leaving Ur Kastim, they're traveling towards Canaan. At the behest of Terach, there is no divine command here at all. It's on his own. He determines to set out to the land of Canaan on his own. He gets as far as Haran and he stops. Terach lived 205 years. Terach dies in Haran. So what does this tell us, this genealogy? On the surface, it's just names, names and places. But actually, it says a lot more because clearly when you read chapter 11 genealogy, Terach stands out. And what's interesting is that Terach himself is headed to the land of Canaan without any kind of command to go there. Because the next verse, Hashem Avram, where we will begin, says that God said to Abraham to go to the place that I will show you. And it turns out that the place that God will show Abraham is none other than the land of Canaan. Avram travels, he comes to the land of Canaan, he comes to Shechem, and God appears to Abraham. 
in Shechem and says, um, you've made it, you've come. This is chapter 12. Uh, when Abraham traveled to Shechem, the Canaanite land, Eretz Canaan, and God said to Abraham, this is the land that I will give to your descendants. Abraham builds an altar. So what's interesting, if you think about it, when God says to Abraham, to go, but God does not give Abraham directions in chapter 12, verse 1. So how did, how did Abraham know where to go? You can travel in north, south, east, or west. Maybe he should travel north. He doesn't. He travels south. How does he know to travel south? So I think the plain reading of the text is, what God is saying to Abraham essentially is, don't stop. Your father started on a path, but for whatever reason, Terach stops in Haran. And don't stop in Haran. Keep going. If you read it this way, then Terach actually is the pioneer. Terach is the one who sets out for whatever reason. We don't know why. Maybe he has a religious calling. Maybe he senses something about the land of Canaan. He starts but doesn't get there. So since he starts and doesn't get there, there are two ways to read Terach. One way to read Terach is, why did he stop? So that will be a critique of Terach. He shouldn't have stopped. He should have kept going. The other way to read Terach is, he started the journey. He didn't make it himself. The Jews who leave Egypt don't make it either but they started the journey. So depending which way you read it, what you focus on, you can see Terach as a negative, which is how Medrash Rabbah sees Terach in that text. But in other texts, actually, I didn't have a chance to check this out. My memory serves me correctly in the, uh, some of the uh, pseudopigrapha, apocrypha, pseudophilo. Their Terach, I think, is presented differently in a more positive light. I'll come back to that in a second. So actually, the genealogy is not just genealogy. It is a genealogy, but it's more than that. And actually, the genealogy provides us with a very important clue about chapter 12, verse 1, why God speaks to Avram and says, Let me just suggest what the point is over here. The genealogy of chapter 11 is shame. Shame is the son of Noah, and shame is the son of Noah who was blessed by Noah. We all remember the story of Noah getting drunk and uncovered in his tent, and something happens there. The Torah is circumspect about it, but shame and Yefet cover up their father. And Noah, when he wakes up, he says he knows what his youngest son had done, and he curses Canaan. He curses his grandson, not Ham, but he curses Canaan and he blesses shame. And he says, Baruch Hashem Eloheshem, Vihi Canaan Eved Lamo. Shame is to be blessed, and Canaan shall be the servant or the slave of shame. The blessing and the curse of Noah, that's found in. Um, chapter, I believe that's chapter nine. Let's see. Um, where is that? Yes, chapter nine. 
That's chapter 9, and the blessing and the curse of shame, that's found in chapter 9, verse number 26. So shame is to capture, subdue, subjugate Canaan. So what the Torah does is it then counts out the generations. If you count out the generations from Noah to Abraham through shame, Abraham turns out to be the 10th generation, 10th generation. The number 10 is an important number in the creation narratives in general. So now we understand why God calls Avram. What God is actually doing is God is calling somebody to fulfill the promise or the blessing and the curse of Noah. When you read the Avram story, not in a vacuum, but in the larger context, in the context of Noah, it's Noah who says essentially that shame is to be blessed. Shame represents in the, that story um, a kind of morality, virtuous conduct. Canaan represents uh, immorality. And Noah's blessing is that there will be a time when shame shall subjugate Canaan. And the time comes when you have the 10th generation. So God's calling to Abraham essentially is a calling to fulfill the blessing and the curse of Noah. We will come back to this very important point later in the Abraham narrative where it becomes clear, and the Midrashim understood this, by the way. Our goal here is not the Medrash. Our goal is to understand the biblical text. But the Medrash often provides us with the uh, ability to see all kinds of interesting connections which after you see them are actually almost obvious, but we often don't see them. So the generation specifically shame and Abraham being the 10th generation, that provides a clue to chapter 12, verse one. And by the way, I'm pretty certain that in, I think it's pseudophilo, that in the generations in pseudophilo, Terach is not nine. In, what we have is Terach is nine and Abraham is 10. But in pseudophilo, I believe, Terach is 10. If Terach is the 10th, actually, that would, that would allow us to see Terach in a different light, to see Terach as actually the pioneer, the patriarch who sets out for the promised land for whatever reason he doesn't make it, he stops short. But he's the one who actually initiates, and then Abraham is actually continuing in his father's footsteps, which would explain why he travels in the direction that he travels. Let me pause here for a moment. If anybody has comments or questions, speak up now and I'll take that. And I want to just continue with this, with this, with, with the Medrash that we started with to see how the Medrash allows us to frame the Abraham story in a way that will allow us to see many new things. So if anybody wants to speak up now, uh, common question, and then I'll continue with the other piece of the Medrash. I would like. Yes. Uh, hello, Rabbi Silver. Hi. It's, Good to see you. As I say, it's uh, worth a ticket from Tel Aviv just to hear you. Thank you. Uh, I want uh, just a general question if you don't feel like answering right now, but it's in my mind. What is it that the two main foundation stories that we have are both about leaving your place or leaving the place you are at? Well, first, the, the main foundational story about leaving your place um, 
Hey, let me just briefly, let me talk about this briefly because this is a, look, the story of the Torah, we just finished the Torah and we stopped the Torah and we finished the book of Breshit, the unbelievable, that is the foundational book, ends with Jacob, pretty much ends with Jacob blessing his children about what's going to happen in the future. And the uh, Torah ends with Moses, Moshe blessing the tribes, what's going to be in the future. Moshe sees the land but can't enter it. The Torah ends with us poised to enter the land, but outside the land. Moshe is buried someplace outside the land. The book of Breshit, the glorious book of Breshit, ends with us, with Jacob talking about what will be in the future, but with the last word of Genesis is, is Mitzrayim. So I think it's fair to say that the Torah in general is written from the perspective of those who aspire to the land, but are outside the land. The Torah is written from the standpoint of the, of the person who, who is in exile. That's the first point I want to make. You don't that's mean the way Breshit ends, and that's the way the Torah ends. It ends with thinking about the future. The land is a dream, an aspiration, but, but the Torah is basically about exile. Breshit is mostly about exile. And the story of the Chumash is about being in the, being in the desert. Now, having said that, the story of exile, of course, is the story of the Garden of Eden. That is, a, that is a foundational story. But beyond that, I think it's the story of Breshit. Abraham, of course, is, leaves his land to possess the land of Canaan. But, and I don't want to get into this now, but the, the, Abraham is a critical figure, of course, giant. He's Godot, he's a giant. But if you had to pick out the main character of Genesis, it's probably got to be Jacob, who, who, who is Israel at the end of the day. And the story of Jacob is about exile. It's about exile in the house of Laban. And the book ends with Jacob in Egypt. He goes down to Mitzrayim. So it's all about leaving your land. I would say if, if the story of Jacob, and I have to just say this one last word, with Jacob, it's not so much about leaving you, it's, it's, but Jacob, it's about returning. Jacob's mission in life is to return. Abraham's life, mission is, is to discover. And Jacob's mission is, is, is to return. Often returning is more difficult than, than discovering. So I think that leaving exile as aspiring, dreaming about a future is what the Bible in general is about and what this book, Breshit, is largely about as well. Let me stop at this point with that very important question. And let me just continue with the Medrash. Does anybody else have something to say here? I mean, I, I, at 11 o'clock, it's over, and I will, I'll stay on for a couple more minutes. People have comments or questions. You can send me an email as well if you have any questions. dsilberatresha.org. Yes, Cheryl. Okay. Um, Dr. Sarna suggests in his research uh, in the area where Tarach came from, that that area was under financial economic distress at the time that he left. And so he suggests that that may be a reason why Tarach moved to Haran and maybe Haran was a, you know, a much more uh, lucrative place for him to do business, whatever he chose to do there. Um, so what would that do to how we see Tarach, no longer a pioneer, but Right. I mean, we, the, the Torah doesn't tell us why he left. The truth is, uh, there's no suggestion in the Chumash that he leaves for financial reasons. No, I'm just saying that the historical 
the history of finances in that area then would suggest everything's a suggestion of course no, i understand that but uh, let me let me let me make a, a, a counter suggestion i think that you know look i think it's in, in general i have a uh skeptical attitude towards talking about the financial situation that existed 3,000 years ago, because even if it's true, you could say right now we're in a pandemic and the economic toll is unbelievably terrible, but the people in high tech have made about $800 billion. Mm. So the fact is that the world is suffering. That doesn't mean that maybe, maybe the idle stores were doing very well. Maybe there was a, you know, maybe there was a run on idols. People mm. were in trouble and they wanted to buy idols and Tarek was, was, was raking in the money. So I say, I, in general, I am skeptical because I don't think we have enough data. But the larger, my, my answer to your point is yes, that we don't know why he leaves. We don't have a clue why he leaves, but I am suggesting, and it's a suggestion that given the fact that God calls Abraham to go to the place that I will show you and doesn't tell us in the text where that place is, that Abraham seems to be simply following in his father's footsteps. He's traveling from north to south. His father stopped, continues on the same journey. That would suggest to us that Terach has, is, the, is, the, is the initiator. On the other hand, he stopped short, which can be seen as a, as a critique. And I suggest that perhaps the different ways to see Terach have to do with, do you focus on stopping short? Mm-hmm. Or, do you, or do you focus on his on his initiative and his pioneering step? You're mm-hmm. of course correct. We don't know why he left. Maybe he left for personal reasons, for financial reasons, for any number of reasons. Maybe they kicked him out of the town, who knows? But my suggestion based on what we do have, which is this text, is that one can read it. One can read Terach in a, in, in, in a more positive light and many people see Terach based on the on, on the Medrash, about him and the, and the idols, etc. I want to say one more thing about this Medrash, about 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 the idols. Again, the Medrash is simply a, a segue and enables us to see the text. I think that's our concern here. Medrash has a value in and of itself, I would add, but our purpose in these classes is always Medrash as a kind of interpretive tool, and that is in the Medrash. Terach brings him to Nimrod. Now, this actually is very interesting because Nimrod is a very important character in, in Breshit. First of all, let's begin with the fact that Nimrod, who is the grandson of Cham, his name and names are very important. Nimrod means we shall rebel. Merit is a rebellion. He's called the Gibor Tzayed with Hashem. This is in chapter 10, a great hunter before God. I would say the Bible in general does not particularly care for hunters. And a Gibor side with Ne Hashem is a very strange expression. Might suggest he's a great warrior before God or against God. It's not clear, but he has a negative name. And he is the first king of the Bible. And his first kingdom in chapter 10 of Genesis, Fati Reshit Mamachto Bavel, Eretz Shinar, he's the king of Bavel. He's the king of Bavel, which is Shinar. That's towards the end of chapter 10. And he builds, it would appear, it's not totally clear, but assigned to him says that, uh, that Nimrod 
let's find this verse, chapter 10, beginning in verse, um, verse, verse 10 and verse 11 of chapter 10. From that land, uh, from that land, uh, Ashur went forth, built Ninveh, Rechovot, Ir, and Kalach. And then later on in this section, it talks about uh, the generations. And it says in verse 14, um, I'm sorry, verse 12, the address and Bainin Veu Ben Kalach, he or Ir Hagdullah. And 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 uh and resen between Ninveh and Kelach, that is the great city, your Ir Hagadullah. It's not clear in the text what Ir Hagadullah refers to, but it could be Ninveh. And we all remember, of course, from Yom Kippur the book of Jonah, that Jonah was commanded to go to Ninveh, which is Ir Gedola, which is the great city. Now, the point is that that's chapter, that's in chapter 10. That's the genealogies of chapter 10. When you come to chapter 11, the latter part of chapter 11 is the genealogy we've been talking about, but the first nine verses of chapter 11 are about Bavel. They're about Bavel and the Tower of Bavel. And we know that the Tower of Bavel, they're going to build a city and a Migdal Bashamayim, a city and a tower that goes up to the heavens. And what is the purpose of the tower that goes to heavens? The Nasalanu shame. Let's make a name for ourselves. So what we know is the Tower of Bavel is the previous narrative in Genesis before you get to Abraham. In between the Migdal Bavo and Abraham narrative is a genealogy, but the prior narrative is Migdal Bavo. Bavo is identified in the Torah with, with Nimrod. Fati Reshit Mamachto Bavel. And his very name Nimrod fits in very nicely with the story of Migdal Bavo. Let us rebel. He brought Sayyid Lufnei Hashem. If that be the case, then actually, thinking about the Abraham narrative of chapter 12 and God speaking to Abraham, one can see that, one can read it in conjunction with Migdal Bavel. One can read it as one might say precisely the opposite of Migdal Bavel. And we have to remember that when it comes to Nimrod, if we ascribe, if we relate Nimrod to Ninveh, Nimrod, Nimrod is a Gibbard Sayyid. If he's the builder of Ninveh, Ninveh is a ir the big city. And what do the people want to build in Babel? A Migdal, a big tower. Migdal, and, and Migdal, of course, from the word Gadol. So the city of Ninveh is connected to Nimrod, ir And Babel is connected to Ninveh, which is a Migdal. And the suggestion is that in each of those two cases, there's something very negative, that the text, the Torah is seeing Nimrod as God's adversary. And then if you read it this way, and you come to the next narrative after Migdal Babel, which is chapter 12, verse number one, 
God commands Avram to walk, to leave his land and to go to the place that I will show you. And the continuation, chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you a big nation. I'll make you gadol. I'll make your name big. And you read this, you say to yourself, the promise to Avram, who leaves his land but goes to the place that God will show him, is to make him gadol, to make him the father of a great nation. And not just the father of a great nation, but I will make your name big. And you read this and you say to yourself, this is precisely the opposite of Migdal Bavel. Because there, the Migdal, what was the purpose of the Migdal in chapter 11? They said the purpose. We will make for ourselves a name, a renown. And by the way, the word shame is not an innocent word. Because the word shame, far from being renowned, has two other significances in general and in these narratives. First of all, the word shame is a name of a particular person. shame. The blessing of Noah was to shame. The curse of Noah was to Cham and Cham's son, Knat. Nimrod is from Cham. He's the grandson of Cham's oldest child. So the point is, the people in Migdal Bavel, they traveled to the east under the banner of Cham, under the banner of Nimrod, and they say, shame. one might say, an undoing of Noah's blessing and curse. No, we're, we're going to be the ones. We're going to be shamed. The world is under our control. And God disperses them. The story of Migdal Bava was about dispersion. The story of Abraham is to leave his land, yes. Is to go into exile, yes. But it's not actually exile. Because the, the, the focus of the Abraham narrative is not going into exile. The focus of the Abraham narrative is to go to the place that I will show you, is to discover and to connect to God's land. So Migdal Bavo and the Avram story, the two narratives that are back to back, which on the surface seem very similar, are polar opposites. Because the first one is about dispersion from. Where we, we, uh, uh, what's the right language over the, there? Uh, scattered. That's exile. Exile means you have no you have no direction. You're leaving a place, but you're not going to something. And the Abraham story is exactly the opposite story. And there is the place that I will show you. In other words, the point being that the human being doesn't determine what is the sacred place. And here we come to the third significance of the word shame. The word shame is often connected, and we'll see this hopefully next week. The word shame is connected to sacred space. Mm. Torah says it explicitly about the temple. We'll see this in Genesis as well. The place that God has chosen to put God's name there. God's name is God's temple. So Migdal Bavel is the Nasalanu shame. We, we humans will determine what is the sacred place. God disperses them. 
And then in the next narrative, which is Avraham, I will, the place that I will show you, I will make your name great, but make your name great carries with it a second significance. It's no accident that when Avram comes into the land of Canaan and God appears to Abraham in verse seven of chapter 12, this is the place, what does Abraham do? He builds an altar because Abraham understands that God is directing Abraham to a sacred place. This is the, so in other words, the context, what the Medrash is helping us with over here is contextualizing the Abraham story. And I tried to demonstrate this morning how it contextualizes it both in terms of the genealogy of chapter 11, but it also contextualizes it within the narrative of chapter 11 and all of this within the broader context of Noah, the blessing and the curse. Tenth generation Abraham is called by God to fulfill Noah's blessing. Uh, the significance of this, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to look at uh, next week and the ensuing weeks, very much looking forward to learning this together with you. I haven't taught this in a long time and hopefully we'll have many new insights. If anybody has a, it's 11 o'clock, if anybody has any comments or questions, please speak up. Otherwise, we'll continue next uh, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Yeah, I just, I just wrote it, but, um, but let, me, let me say it. Naselanu shame without the voweling could mean naselanu sham, that we will, we, will, we will do what we're trying to do there. In other words, okay, let me, let me, uh, let me, let me say the following. Hold this comment. You've hit on something very important. And of course, it was fully in the, in the text. It was, I, I, I'm going to get to that. Um, in fact, let me say one point just to, and we'll continue this next time. When you read Migdal Bavel, story of Migdal Bavel, which should please do, first nine verses of chapter 11, you will see that the word Shin Mem appears seven times. Sometimes it's shame, and sometimes it's shame. Not just in Migdal Bavel, but in chapter 12, in our chapter, we will see that the Torah plays with shame and sham. The Torah said it. <laughs> Could be more clear. Shame and sham will be found in chapter 12 as well. It's a good point. Okay, so we'll stop at this point. If anybody has, you can email me if you have any comments or questions. Looking forward to this. Have a good day. Okay. Thank Great. You. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much for joining. And just a quick housekeeping reminder. Uh, please don't miss out on our other fall classes that are going to be continuing today, this afternoon at 1 p.m. with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukier. His class is What Does the Divine Image Look Like? Perspectives from Chazal. And, and as many of you know, since uh, it was started in 1979, Rabbi Silver wanted programs and classes to provide value to our community. And so Drisha is continuing to offer intellectual and thought-provoking classes on Tanakh and Jewish thought and halacha for men and women of, of all ages. And so in light of the challenges of COVID and the implications of social distancing and these renewed attention to issues of inequality and discrimination, our, our current semester has many topics that are organized around the concept of human dignity and divine image in Tanakh and Talmud to help us gain insights 
in the into the world and our role in it. So I do hope they will come learn with us, uh, learn more at Jerisha. And if you haven't yet registered for these classes, there is of course still time. More information is on our website, www.jerisha.org forward slash classes. All the Zoom, Facebook live links and Jerisha live links are all posted on each class. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi Silber, for this insightful class. And I'm happy to have had the opportunity to learn, learn with you. I know that many others in today's class have this uh, uh, it was it was a good return to to our Sunday morning classes for for many people in the room, and I look forward to seeing you and everybody else. I guess same time, same place next week. Have a wonderful day, Chodesh Tov, everyone. Or the base.